Well, very warm welcome to this event which focuses on crimes of the past. My name's Joe Fox. I'm a historian at the Department here of History at Durham University. And it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome our authors this afternoon. Bridget O'Donnell, author of Inspector Minahan Makes a Stand, and Peter Moore, author of Damn His Blood. Well, both books that we're considering this afternoon make a fascinating contribution to the popular field of the historical novel. They are far removed, though, uh, from the comfortable portrait of a, a past uh, that is characterized by, by its innocence. Uh, they explore the much darker side uh, of the Victorian era, uh, uncovering hidden stories of crime, corruption, deception, and indeed murder across the 19th century. They tackle the multiple dimensions of justice in the period, justice that was often found, if at all, outside of the conventional methods of looking at justice through the courts or indeed uh, through the corridors of power. Bridget O'Donnell is a, oh, sorry, I've lost this my first time using one of these things. Um, Bridget O'Donnell is a successful playwright and journalist, and Peter Moore has spent time writing for the media too in Spain before returning to London uh, to concentrate on his writing, teaching creative writing at the City University. And I've been hearing that that's where you both encountered one another yes. in your exploration of these two stories. For Peter, this is a return to uh, Durham. He studied history and sociology at the university here. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him back and a very warm welcome to you, Bridget, to our city. Thank you. The format of today's uh, session will focus, first of all, on two readings from, from our authors, and then we'll engage in a little bit of discussion and then happy to open that up to the, to the rest of you to ask some questions. So, Bridget, if I can invite you to read first for us. Okay, I'm going to read um, an extract from chapter four in the book. Um, and it's a conversation that takes place between Inspector Minahan, who's the hero of the book, and an infamous brothel madam in Chelsea called uh, Ma Madame Jeffries or Mrs. Jeffries. Um, it was to prove a pivotal conversation for both of them, it would change their lives and also <clears throat> the course of English history. And what you need to know up to this point is that Inspector Minahan had already made a small stand. He had been at Bow Street, and a prisoner had been beaten up there in custody by one of the police officers. And Minahan had decided to side with the prisoner against his fellow officer. And for that, he was um, felt to be a traitor by his colleagues. He refused to change his statements um, for the court case. And he was sent to Chelsea as punishment. Basically, it was a bit of a backwater after Bow Street, which is much more prestigious. Um, so he's already kind of slightly decided to sort of, you know, engage with the, the right side of justice. And then he meets this brothel madam in Chelsea. And this is the moment when they met. A voice came to him through the blue of an August midnight. It is no good, she said, for the police to watch my houses, as I only do business with gentlemen of the highest rank in life. Jeremiah paused on his beat and turned. He knew who she was. Her reputation was far greater than her physical stature. Standing in the shadows of 125 Church Street in Chelsea, she looked a little old lady with a stoop. 
But to London's sex industry in the summer of 1882, Mary Jeffries remained a colossus. A shameless show-off, she relished the reverberations she caused in fine society, frequenting respectable night haunts with her scandalous entourage, gaggles of fallen girls in flashy silks, and young boys whose fingers glistened with diamond rings and whose feet were covered with patent shoes. Curious, Jeremiah, sorry, Jeremiah is Inspector Minahan, I use his first name. Jeremiah chose to stop with her a while in order, he wrote, to obtain all the information he could. Good evening, she continued. You have not been here long. He saw a well-dressed woman whose firmly set chin and slightly raised eyebrows bore a look of resigned inevitability. A 62-year-old widow nearing the end of a long career immersed in all manner of sexual desires. There was little, perhaps, that surprised Mary Jeffries. Her hooded eyes appraised the well-favoured police inspector before her. The best London courtesans and brothel keepers would study every le lech, whim, caprice and desire of her customer. In Jeremiah, Geoffrey saw a powerful man buttoned tightly into his smart blue uniform. And what she surmised about his caprice impelled her, misguidedly, to boast. I keep eight houses, she said. I pay my taxes and keep them in good order. The police have watched my houses and only found I conduct them well. Soon after this meeting, Jeremiah quietly began investigating Mary Jeffries. To ascertain exactly how many properties she owned in the area, he checked the Chelsea Vestry rate books. By now, Jeffries had begun focusing her main brothel operation on three adjacent properties on Church Street, numbers 125, 127 and 129. All three were single-fronted terraced townhouses. Having recently sold numbers 121, 111 and 105, Jeffries had reinvested her money in the redecoration of these terraced three and had them ingeniously arranged for the purposes of her business. As a barrister later described, numbers 127 and 129 are connected internally by doorways on the upper floors and the other one, 125, by an entrance through the garden. Practically, the three houses are only one set of premises, for persons entering one may leave by another. The object being to escape the notoriety and odium attaching to visiting houses of this kind. And there were rumours of more. A flogging house in Hampstead, a house of assorted perversions near the Grays Inn Road, and a white slave clearing house for trafficking girls, conveniently situated on the river near Kew. Although the whispers that snaked in Geoffrey's wake were often far more imaginative than the truth, wealthy men continued to be drawn by her cosmopolitan antics and professional acumen. She also offered them what they wanted. Geoffrey's gentleman paid five pounds for a girl, of which, she informed Jeremiah during their extraordinary nighttime conversation, she received two pounds and the girls would receive three. Jeffrey's eight houses entertained around three customers a day, earning her a tidy average of £336 a week. On top of this were the special requests from one-off clients, rich men like Leopold II, King of the Belgians, who spent astonishing sums. Leopold II once put £800 a month into Jeffrey's pocket. 
When this sum was later revealed in court, no one disputed its viability. The question was, what did Leopold spend it on? Jeffreys was quick to sate Jeremiah's curiosity with a disturbing answer. It is not in London only that I carry on the business, she told him, but I send young girls to Paris, Berlin and Brussels. Leopold had been paying Jeffreys to traffic young Englishwomen to him in Belgium. Thank you. Peter. Well, I'll start by saying it's very nice to be back. Um, I'm not going to give you any explanation because I'm going to read from the introduction, so it should stand for itself. The book's called um, Damn His Blood, and it's got an extraordinarily long subtitle, which you can all read when you've got enough time. Um, so this is the introduction. At the beginning of the 19th century, the village of Oddingley in Worcestershire was a little different to any other of its type in the English Midlands. The problems it faced were typical ones. There was creeping migration as young parishioners drifted north to the industrial heartlands of Birmingham and the black country. There were anxieties over the harvest, the scarcity of food supplies, and the speed of inflation. In the village, there was a lingering dispute between the parish clergymen and local farmers over the tithe and in newspapers, fears persisted of an imminent invasion, with Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister, warning Britons to expect the French every dark night. In a politically divided country, riven by war and taxation, there was little reason to notice Oddingley, with its sloping meadows, airy pear and apple orchards, tangled hedgerows and lonely farmhouses, until the dreadful murder that shook it in June 1806. The case unraveled slowly over the days and many years that followed. What initially appeared to be a single vicious act transpired in time to be something far worse. The crime had been conceived, executed, then concealed in such an extraordinary manner that it gained infamy, becoming one of the most compelling of its age. As facts were reported, chiefly through the newspapers, inquisitive Georgians became captivated by the unequalled colour, detail, and the ever-twisting, ever-evolving narrative of the case. It was a story of moral corruption, of greed and ruthlessness. It began with a single shot, with the excitement of a chase, and then the uneasy thrill of a manhunt. But this initial enthusiasm soon gave way to soon gave way to uncertainty. The magistrates who were sent to invest were, uh, investigate were country gentlemen thrust into duty because of their geographical proximity to the crime scene rather than for their ability to construct a case or to pursue a felon. And there were many, uh, and there were many questions for them to answer. What should they make of the farmer's curses? What of the clandestine meetings? What of the murder weapon? What of the suspects? It seemed that every little triumph or breakthrough led only to a new strange riddle or another dead end. In time, it became a newspaper sensation. Articles were published in titles as geographically distinct as the Belfast Newsletter and Ipswich Journal. In Edinburgh, the Caledonian Mercury labelled the crime a mysterious conspiracy, while in London, the Examiner and Morning Chronicle both agreed it was a strange case. 
Journalists detected elements of other crimes in the orderly affair of Eugene Aram's murder of Daniel Clark in Yorkshire, of Richard Patch's killing of Isaac Blight in 1805, of the Red Barn murder in 1827, and even the Cato Street conspiracy of 1820. Details from these cases were present as echoes in articles filed by the handful of fortunate journalists who, gave, uh, who gained access to the Worcester courtrooms. A crime concealed in an ill-considered incident left the village's reputation blackened for generations, its name known throughout the land. The Oddingley case evokes the expressive and uncouth Georgian society that directly preceded Victorian Britain. Here many parishes remained worlds of their own, where little networks of hardy alliances were built on a stiff foundation of family loyalty and respect, where the men drank hard, worked hard, swore oaths and cursed. For many historians, this world has remained elusive and opaque, with the Oddingley villages of 1806 living in a time before determined record-keeping began. It's a lost society that is resurrected in this criminal case as the voices, concerns, and culture of a rural parish at the beginning of the 19th century come to life. It's the world which years later provided such a rich mind for novelists such as Charles Dickens and Thomas Hardy, and characters such as kindly Joe Gargery, the blacksmith, Abel Magwitch, the convict, Michael Henchard, and Donald Farfrae would have been at ease in the village alongside those who were there in 1806. Captain Evans, the retired military officer, Parish farmers John Barnett and Thomas Clues, Richard Hemming, the tramping old job man, and Reverend Parker, the local parson. For the growing professional classes of late Georgian England, so intent on cleansing society of its ills and excesses, the story was a disquieting tale of a parish astray. More than perhaps any murder before, the crime involved a whole community, and the investigating magistrate's attempt to unearth facts were dogged by questions of who knew what and at what price they were willing to reveal the truth. In time, Oddingley gained a reputation as an unhappy place of secrets and lies. It was cursed, wretched, damned. Beautiful and almost perfectly head hidden along the hills and woods of the Worcestershire countryside, the village was an unlikely setting for a terrible crime. Mary Sherwood, a popular children's author, wrote at the time, if ever there was a secluded, humble, quiet-looking village, a village thinly populated and which, to all appearance, is the domicile of only patient and peaceable sons of the soil, it is Oddingly. Its aspect belies it. It was a scene, and not that many years since, on which were exhibited some of the fiercest passions of man's fallen nature. The spot where the seeds of malice, hatred, and the most, most determined and deeply seated revenge sprang up and ripened into a harvest of crime, crime most deliberately conceived and delicately executed. That's that. Thank you. Can I start us off by asking you both how you came across your stories? Um, well, I came across mine. I used to be direct reconstructions for Crime Watch, and I heard about the cases of the girls in Rochdale, which had been going on for six, seven years, really. And I started researching that, how that could possibly happen in England. Um, and some people had compared it with the white slave trade of the 
19th century and early 20th century. So I started looking into that and realised that actually the, at the heart of the white slave trade, which became a sort of a myth, um, was, a, was an actual trafficking of English girls to the continent, which I found quite shocking because it was in the 1880s and it was the Victorians who you don't really consider to have you know, done these kinds of things. And I, I knew about trafficking because I'd made documentaries for the BBC, so I kind of understood how it worked and the methodology the, uh, the criminals use. And it's exactly the same methodology used in the 1880s as with trafficking per se and as with the girls in Rotherham in that they're kind of groomed and courted and kind of hoodwinked, really, a lot of them. Um, so that's how I found that. And then in the midst of this was this Irish policeman standing outside this Chelsea brothel. Uh, he seemed like an intriguing character. Um, so I started looking into him and kind of pulled on this thread and realised that he had kind of set in motion, he was this catalyst for this enormous change, including the raising of our age of consent laws in 1885 to 16. And so if he hadn't made his stand, well, I suppose they may have been raised eventually, but it was because of him making the initial stand that we, we, our age of consent is 16 today. It's a good story. <laughs> OK, so I, um, I set off trying to write a book about shell shock, so you'll notice that I failed completely. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to research the life of an elderly uncle or, or a, a great uncle of mine who died before I was born, and he lived in a small Worcestershire village called Tiberton. Um, I was fascinated at what seemed to be a very kind of um, uh, separated life in a way. He was very kind of... Um, uh, He'd made a very auspicious start to life, and then he descended into alcoholism after the war. And I couldn't find out enough about him to kind of form the material for a book, but um, I did find out about this murder case from reading the parish records. Oddingly is the village next to Tiberton, about two miles away. And at the back of um, a parish records, or a, a parish history, sorry, they had a description of this strange murder story which had happened in the adjoining parish. Oddingly probably isn't quite organised enough to have its own parish history, I don't know. But they, um, I'd, read, I'd read this, and I thought it was a fascinating story, immediately leapt out at me. And I'm, I, I'm quite familiar with having done history at Durham. I think you kind of come across all sorts of the 19th century murders, which are almost a big genre in themselves. Everyone knows about the Ripper story and Dr Palmer of Rugeley and the Mannings and so on. And... Um, and I just hadn't heard about this story, and it seemed to me really compelling, because instead of just the being a lone killer and the idea of having to weed out from all these suspects which was the guilty party, it seemed to be a community-wide crime that involved all of these different people who belonged to one or another faction. And um, I, it kind of immediately appealed to me, and I thought this would make a wonderful... Um, the wonderful plot for a book like this so you could explore the history. And then I, um, I've, I found out more and more about it, and luckily there's a lot of primary source of, uh, stuff which survives, so I was able to find out all sorts. And, and the story was there, and I think a lot of it was just me trying to step back, get out of the way, and tell, let it tell itself and find a structure. Um, it's yeah. interesting that you mention primary sources, Peter, yeah. because both of your books draw on primary sources for for this, the, the text and indeed the context of, of, of your, your, your narratives. And as a historian, I found that very interesting. How do you navigate that path between the, the factual past and the creative fiction? I, I found that quite an interesting uh, a, approach that you both took. 
How do you navigate it? I think um, you've got this kind of um, balance that you've got to address throughout, which is plot and context. Yeah. Um, and like for me, the, the story, for me, I, I think I was as much fascinated by the story of this village which survived, I said in the introduction, for historians to get at like kind of um, details about life in a village in rural England in 1806 are really tricky because this is before, this is before photography, this is before the census really got going in the 1840s into something which actually meant something. So a lot of all of this information was lost. So I, I saw the, the story as a prism to get to the history. And, um, and if, for example, this murder hadn't have happened in Oddingley, the magistrates wouldn't have been dispatched there to find out what had happened. They wouldn't have written uh, like kind of witness testimonies. And, and I found this, um, this great um, brief for the prosecution when the case finally came to trial, which included witness testimonies from about 100 different people who lived in the village out of a population of maybe 110. So you get this kind of panorama of what was happening on this specific day, and I thought that was really fascinating. It was a lot of the little, the little kind of um, episodes, sorry, that, that you might find out that one farmer was burning a bonfire and another one was like kind of stripping a weed from the side of a pit and so on. And um, I don't know if I'm getting away from your question a little bit here, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it, you've got to kind of balance that. Mm. Yeah. I think for me it was, um, well, I think we both would agree on this, but it's, it, I was um, absolutely sure that it had to be entirely factual, even mm. the weather, the time, what they were wearing, what they said I'd made, would make nothing up. That was kind of my strict adherence. So however creative I wanted to be, you know, if I wanted to use, for example, the weather, I'd look that up in the Times mm. and find out what kind of a day it was. And being British, I do think that affects people's <laughs> moods anyway. <laughs> so it gave you another kind of way of looking into a situation. Um, and I was lucky because mine was is set in the 1880s, um, by which time the Victorians are, you know, pamphleteering in newspapers and newspaper reporters and rivalry in the city. And so I had a, a wealth of material. And I was very lucky that Minahan wrote his own pamphlet describing his experiences at Bow Street um, through to Chelsea. Uh, and, and a bit beyond that, meeting Mrs. Jeffries. So you, I was able to get the dialogue as, as it happened. Um, and, yes, yeah, so th there was a kind of wealth to you. Actually, my kind of difficulty was kind of making sure, you know, what to trim out, actually, because mm. the Victorians loved words and spoke yeah. so much and wrote so much. It, trimming them down was the, the challenge, really. So. Yeah, I think maybe I'll just, like, kind of re go back to your original point, which is the kind of the creative aspect of the book and mm. the, the factual um, emphasis that we both put on it. I think we... We both went through a creative writing program, which probably, like, kind of exposed us to a lot of books, which, like, kind of have an interesting take on telling true stories. And mm -hmm. I look back to uh, the new journalism movement of the '60s, which kind of started in America, and Capote's in, in Cold Blood, which you might know some of you. Um, and there's there's a great tradition of this kind of writing, and a lot of it is um, is about structure, I think because when you think maybe more of academic writing, there's a set structure that you kind of adhere to and you can concentrate on the material more. And I think we were both trying to find structures which allowed us to kind of maybe withhold information. I mean, I've, I've pretty much used the structure which you would find in a detective um, novel, really, which owes much more to crime fiction than it does to his, you know, academic history writing. So um, I think it kind of makes an interesting middle ground between the two. What do you think the role of the historic novelist is? I think it's um, 
to give uh, people a taste of the history of the time and the interesting social history, but without getting too involved in the heavy sort of academic mm -hmm. debates. So there's not sometimes with history, but you just kind of find yourself not skipping, but maybe, um, you know, and so it's to kind of value the story and the narrative and keep it as gripping and as interesting as possible. And you've got all the lovely, the best facts and the most kind of curious facts that re reveal something about the social history of the times, but you don't have this great kind of historical tomes. They have their own place. So this is kind of a genre outside the kind of academic mm -hmm. history book, really. Mm -hmm. So it's all there and with the footnotes. And if you want more, you can get more. You know where to go. Um, but um, for the purpose of the book, I just wanted the... Well, we, the, the point was to... The narrative is supreme. You know, I want it to trot along like an, in, you know, an interesting, gripping story. Mm -hmm. So the reader is compelled. And as a few people have told me, they've kind of learnt something along the way, as I, as I did when I was researching it. Yeah, it's an interesting question. What, what is the role? I think, mm -hmm. like, kind of, we both hope to entertain people with stories yeah. which enliven an aspect of history um, and make it accessible. But I think we've both got to kind of realise that once you're telling true stories and, and it goes in a non-fiction -se non section mm -hmm. of a bookshop, people have standards that you've got to adhere to. And if, if either of us, I imagine, started making um, little bits up here and there, it would be maybe to um, the benefit of a paragraph, but it would be to the great detriment of the work as a whole because I don't think... I didn't feel the need to to make anything up because I had such a rich story anyway. Mm. And um, I, I went and did an event in Oddingley. The whole like kind of parish turned out. And, I, it was, <laughs> and, um, and it, you know, these are the people you got to sit in front of, you know. And if you've kind of... I think people can be quite protective over history, especially with these local yeah. stories. And I spent a long time talking to people from the church and... and I didn't want to seem like I was bulldozing my way in and telling their history. And, mm. and if it was me fictionalizing it as well, I think I would have had all sorts of problems to cope with. So I think we probably try and entertain, but you've got to, you've yeah. got to tell the truth, I think. Yeah, as I was in touch with Minahan's relatives, the sons, some, you know, who are living now, obviously, and one of them's a, a Carmelite nun. <laughs> so <laughs> we've definitely been caught out on a lie by, by her, but they, they both liked it, <laughs> fortunately. So you do have, you have a moral responsibility, I think, even though most, you know, people in the book are long dead, you still have a moral responsibility to represent them, you know, carefully. Although did, you do have the advantage in the 19th century that you you're not going to be libeling people, I think. Yes. <laughs> That's what they did to tell us at the BBC, you can't libel the dead. <laughs> That's my lawyer's constant yeah. refrain. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you still have to be careful, I think, just sort of ethically, really. Mm. It's interesting that you mention sort of morals and justice, and because these are the, this is a theme that really unites the two books. Yeah. So how do you see those elements playing out in, in your, your two stories and why, why is this a window onto the morals of this period? Um, well, for me, I, mean, I think, you know, Minahan's whole experience was, was a moral one. You know, he, he made this choice at Bow Street and he took a stand and he knew that was a kind of career-ending stand because he'd been in the police 20 years and knew kind of what he was doing, but he decided to go with justice on this occasion, took a huge personal risk. Mm -hmm. And then once he'd kind of gone there, I, I sort of described, gone into sort of a, 
uh, a non-conformist like hinterland, if you like. There's almost there's no return for him. He lost mm. his career uh, eventually, and he lost his pension. He lost the structure of his life, mm. um, and continued campaigning though to to kind of get justice and, and to change the law and to try and protect these girls uh, more than they were at the time because the age of consent was. 13, and there were no vice laws at all, and mm. brothels were basically illegal. Um, and so, but at the same time, people didn't like him for it, or so you know, he, he faced a lot of adversity because he made his stand. And I think, kind of, does reflect almost today the kind of some moral dilemmas. For example, with the Jimmy Savile thing, it's like, why didn't anyone say anything 30, 40 years ago? And because people are quite afraid to make a stand, and you could argue rightly so, because you know, it can be a a risky thing to do, mm. um, but at the same time, a very brave and courageous thing to do. So I suppose I was almost sort of not just following the morality then, but the morali morality mm. now mm. with him. He was kind of walking this very fine line. So. Mm. I, I think um, I'd like to answer this really fully, but I'm, I also don't want to ruin the plot. So I'm <laughs> going to walk, uh, walk along a tightrope here, and if I, if I don't make sense, that's the reason. But I think, as, um, as Bridget says, as you can find dilemmas that we have, moral dilemmas, and um, in, in, in my book I've, I've come across quite a few parallels, especially like, uh, oh God, how do I say this without ruining over? Um, with the Stephen Lawrence case, and you look at like how, um, you know, we had a big problem with that case and how a group of people can commit one murder and who's responsible for a crime, and this is, this is something I try and explore here. Um, and I find, like, kind of oddingly in 1806, this little parish on the cusp of change because it's a, it's really, to all intents, almost a feudal setup with a parson and a, well, it didn't have a squire, but a local landowner or everyone renting their farms and, and they're kind of right next to Birmingham, which is this kind of surging industrial powerhouse. And the whole criminal justice system um, in 1806, when I start the book, is pretty much what you think of as the bloody code where, where 200 different offences could have anyone um, hung from you know, the scaffold. And then by the time the story finishes in 1830, Robert Peel, who's up there, you can have a look at him. We've brought him in specially for today. <laughs> um, he um, he revolutionised the whole um, criminal justice system. And um, I think this story is kind of caught like kind of at this moment between like kind of the end of the Georgians, the beginning of the Victorians, or what we think of as, as the Victorians, and people trying to, like kind of, you know, lots of interesting questions about p prisons and punishment. And um, it, it, so therefore, I, I think it is quite interesting. You can get lots of ideas of justice. And the case was strange enough that it set precedents which lasted for 100 years or more, I think. So... Um, it's difficult for me to say any more, though, without giving myself away. I'm very struck by the way that you're both speaking about these historic events through the lens of the present. And as a historian, you're constantly trying to negotiate the, the strangeness of the past and its closeness. And I think that you've both eloquently spoken about the, the, its closeness. What about the strangeness? Oh, that's a good question. Um, strangeness of the kind of the Victorian habitat and the, the lives and the way they spoke, I suppose, was what struck me. Particularly the way they spoke, they were very poetic in the way they spoke um, and gave a lot of value to the written word. 
um, and, and also to, they still had codes of honour and chivalry. Um, and also what struck me is they're very, they were quite earnest um, and kind of unselfconscious about their earnestness and their kind of desire to change the world. They weren't as cynical or as jaded. They were sophisticated, but they weren't as cynical or as jaded as we are. And it was almost like the last kind of chivalric um, thing that happened before modern, modern, modernism occurred. And modernism was all about being quite urbane and, you know, dry and um, jaded. And I think the Victorians were that kind of last blast of, it's almost like um, sort of our adolescence, if you see mm. what I mean. It was sort of before we all became sort of chin-stroking, cigarette-smoking modernists <laughs> who were quite blasé <laughs> about the world. And I, I really loved them for that because mm. I think that... The, our cynicism can be quite damaging, if you see what I mean. We don't, it can stop you getting things done <laughs> or, you know, trying to change the world, I guess. And, and they were kind of unashamed about wanting to do that. Mm. So. Mm. I think, like, at this point, I think just to emphasise, we're at different ends of the 19th yeah. century, so... <laughs> um, I, I've got a bit of a bugbear, actually, about the 19th century just being called the Victorian century because, it, you know, there's a lot... I think that maybe this is book marketing which has a lot to answer for here, but you often... Um, like kind of see people overlooking the Georgians but I would also um, reiterate what you say about language because it's our great kind of um, this great primary source material you can get to the language and you can get to the culture and the personalities of these people who are producing this interesting language the title of the book Damn His Blood is, um, is really just a quote from one of the farmers and we don't use um, I mean, language evolves and changes. The word damn um, as a curse now is, is not going to scare anyone. But 200 years ago, in a much more religious society than we have today, it was, it was something that was almost verging on a taboo um, in many... Well, depending on the context, but particularly if you look someone in the eyes and say, damn your blood, damn your eyes, was, uh, was what Byron referred to in Don Juan as the once all-famous curse. Um, and I think, um, I think the only way we can equate the power of these well, the power of these words is almost with a racial slur today. You know, how we kind of recoil if you hear someone being racist because um, the taboo of our time is racism. The taboo of their time was, was much more religiously kind of. So to damn someone was to wish them away to hell and the torments of the devil. And, um, and this is this language really kind of, I think, allows you to access or, or get, get access to the story as it was then and, and the ferocity of the, the feud which happened between the clergymen in this parish and the farmers. Uh, the clergyman was subject to all of these, um, well, some, some very vicious language in the months before he died. So... I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that your crimes play out in very different settings, in yeah. an urban setting, in a rural setting. Mm. You know, when you contrast the two, what light does that shed on, on crime in these different places? Well, it's interesting because I think, like, it, this, is, this is, again, 200 years ago, and since that time, it's almost become a literary cliche to have this beautiful, picturesque English village. It's Midsummer Murders, basically, isn't it? It's kind of the idea that um, this is the Sherlock Holmes talks about the, the smiling English countryside being um, scarier than the vilest alleys of London. 
And um, it's something which has been built upon. And, and I think it does give a very different tenor to the, the story because you have different concerns. And um, yeah, the, like kind of the, the rural parish, I found a fascinating setting for the crime because as well as I said in the introduction it's almost a, um, a world in its own people didn't leave parishes they often were born and died in the same parish and they were so reliant in this parish on the farmers for for work to, to subside basically that it kind of created this this interesting dynamic that you had loyalty which cannot be broken because if you are um, if you're the, the farmer and I'm the worker and I rebel, where you say, well, I'm not going to give you any more work, and what can I do? I'm cast out of the parish, I've got to go. And I think that's the difference, and yeah. it's more fluid. And you kind of, you've got this anonymity in your story. We're like kind of... I would disagree with that, Peter. Well, <laughs> over to you. Well, that, well, I suppose the point I was going to make was the, um, the city life. What I felt was um, that people were starting to understand what it meant to live in a city, to live cheek by jowl in a society, and they were starting to address... They'd had the Factory Acts and the Education Acts where they were starting to address each other's moral behaviour. And because you could live in the city, you could see what was going on. So you would see the kind of young prostitutes in the street. Um, you might see um, the, the kind of traffickers types who kind of congregated around Soho. I mean, that, so that was very visible, and also... People were obviously were aware of brothels. They didn't kind of mention them if you were respectable. Um, but they were very aware of Mrs. Jeffries and what she was up to. All the neighbours knew, because they all helped Jeremiah, uh, Inspector Minahan, kind of try and bring her down, basically. And I think the kind of uh, introduction of the vice laws and the campaign for that was a way of kind of trying to contail people's behaviour in the city as well. A largely, you know, wealthy gentleman abusing kind of poor and vulnerable girls. And it was almost like the last thing that the city needed to do mm -hmm. was to kind of introduce a kind of vice restrictions um, so that everybody could live together reasonably in a reasonably just way and mm -hmm. no one was being too um, exploited, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that was the city. But as well as... Um, the, uh, there is a certain anonymity, but also the newspapers were extremely powerful. Newspaper reporters were everywhere. And it was only really zones one and two. <laughs> so people seemed to know each other quite well, um, even though they're in the middle of the city. Um, and their lives were very kind of public um, because of the newspapers and House of Commons and things like that. So there is some anonymity that they could get away with some things, but um, they were all kind of looking at each other like we do on the on the web now. Really, it was kind of that's what the city experience, well, I think, was to the late Victorians. Yeah. I mean, there's the two stories about Britain, but as a as a historian of modern Europe, I was quite struck with the presence of the continent yeah. in both. Mm. Yeah, which yeah, because um, obviously, for, yeah, that was a kind of the, you know continent it was like over there it's like Europe actually even though we're part of Europe we call it Europe don't we and these girls kind of just disappeared off mm. and the men that took them largely apart from women like Jeffreys were from Belgium and France and so they were kind of foreign mm. and other or they, they, they were the first people to kind of get caught <laughs> if you like so yes it, it was a place of otherness and once mm. the girls were there they could never return they on every level they couldn't mm. return to respectability and they couldn't return physically it was very difficult for them to do that so yeah it was a kind of dark and strange mm. and frightening place I think um, and Paris. it was equally dark and frightening <laughs> yeah. 
1806, yeah. because this is, well, maybe, like, kind of the anxiety eased a little, but this is a time of war, and um, the fear of Napoleon was enormous at the time. I think probably before Trafalgar it was worse, because a lot, you know, a lot changed after that battle, but um, this story happens within this climate of fear, and th there's this argument that things happen in times of conflict that don't happen in times of peace because the rules change. Um, and a lot of the characters in this book, well, there's one character in particular who's a retired military officer called Captain Evans, who's very much a Long John Silver kind of character. He was very mercurial, and he was a um, he basically ran a press gang during the American uh, the American um, Revolutionary War, um, Inde War of Independence. Which one am I getting? <laughs> anyway, that one in the the one in the seventeen seventies. Let me get myself right. But he um he he's this kind of brooding presence in the parish, and by the early nineteenth century, you've got this what I'd like equate to almost a nineteen forty syndrome, where you have um, nursery rhymes about Napoleon. People are pinning up pamphlets about the French coming. There's a point in the book where um, they think the French have landed and all the volunteers go charging off to Worcester. Um, the militias are dra dragooning the parish looking for recruits. So it's a time of nervousness and um, apprehension. And it all comes from the continent, which is a scary mm. place. Mm. And um, still was um, we've got, I think mm. you've got the, uh, the, the great caricaturist of the time, Gilray, who you'll find in just about any history book of the period, because he so beautifully encapsulates this kind of idea of John Bull, the big um, red-blooded Englishman. And, and you've got Napoleon Bonaparte, who's this effeminate Frenchman, who is very vain, as a kind of contrast to him. Do you know the famous caricature when they're sat around the globe and I think it's sort of, they're like carving it up, aren't they? Yeah. Mm. Um, this is this is all contemporary to the story, and I think this fear of the outsider it really manifests itself in in the parish because the clergyman is an outsider. He's not from the parish. He comes in from the outside. Uh, he was called Reverend George Parker, and he came from the Lake District. And I think, in a way, that's a reflection of this fear um, that they have of the French mm. at the time. Yeah. I think just sort of to add on this, thinking about the, the continent, is that um, the, the late Victorians regarded Paris and Brussels as kind of dens of iniquity. And then what happened as a result of Je Mrs. Jeffreys being found out, and then there was this huge newspaper expose um, organised by a man called William Stead, and um, the w very worst thing about his expose was not only that he recorded, you know, the thoughts of procuresses and prostitutes verbatim, which was quite shocking, um, but he also exposed uh, the great British Empire as being kind of also quite sordid, and that was his, his crime, and he actually did end up being taken to court by, or by the establishment, really, for being so audacious as to expose England as being as bad as the continent, so... Yeah. Before we open up uh, questions to, to our audience, I'd like to conclude with a question about memory and how you think that these types of stories affect the way that we remember the 19th century. Ooh. Mm, that's a very good question. 
Bridget. I was actually, I, it, for me, doing the research of this book actually threw the Victorians on their head for me because I always experienced them as quite prudish and um, a little bit kind of dull, really. And actually doing the research, I realised they're totally fascinating people, um, really go-getting and entrepreneurial. Um, and, yes, wanting to change the world, and, and particularly these moral campaigners, they came from a kind of non-conformist, dissenting background, largely, and they uh, wanted to discuss uh, trafficking and sexuality in a kind of open and rational, not very British kind of a way, and they were kind of almost desperate to talk about sex. Um, which is not something you associate with Victorians at all, particularly moral campaigns, because you think about them as being really prudish. Um, but they, they believe that, and I think it's still rings true with these girls in Rochdale, is that they should be taught about these issues, because, uh, as one of the Victorian campaigners says, if you're forewarned, then you're forearmed. And that was their whole thing, mm -hmm. was basically, mm -hmm. let's, we need to talk about sex. And that, I found that quite shocking, because mm -hmm. I thought the Victorians were terribly prudish, but they weren't at all, they were kind of... Yeah, quite progressive, or very progressive. So, it changed completely my thoughts on the Victorians actually doing the research for this book. And I think that's equally. I've one some of the nicest things that people have said after reading my book is that they didn't realise that you know the history was like that. Then a lot of local people have read the book because it's such a local story, so it's really relevant to them. And I, I, I suppose the idea about memory. Um, is I'm trying to tell a history through a plot where, you know, the kind of the idea that Simon Sharma always used to tell history through individuals and kind of pluck someone out and then you'd remember because mm -hmm. you'd remember this one individual. And in the same way, I think we've got this story, which is, as I said before, the prism for this great history, whether someone would read um, a, a book um, which was just about a Georgian village in 1806 without this, I don't know. But it's almost you kind of giving people history by accident, and they, and mm. you make it meaningful because you mm. kind of put everything in context. And mm. um, and I think it's great when you hear people say, "Oh, I never thought it was like this," or you know, "I'd never thought to read anything like that." So um, yeah, I think it. People will think of if they read this book and think of the case, it will hopefully call up some historical ideas for them. It might be about Trafalgar. It might be about the cursing, or it might be about how many glovers there used to be in Worcester at the time, or something like this. But it's a, it's a prism f for the history, if you see what I mean. So that's what I hope. Mm, yeah. Fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. If I can open it up to, to our audience, we have a, a couple of colleagues here with microphones. So if you could wait until they get to you before asking your question, I'd be ever so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Peter, you paint pictures of the different types and parts of the countryside in your book where the different events happened. But 200 years on, woods will have been felled, plantations put in, farms merged. If we went back to the Oddingly surroundings today, to what extent do you think we'd be able to actually see the events as they were? Well, a very good question. And... Um, first thing I'll say is landscape is a great tool for us because, um, you know, there's this idea that the landscape 
especially in, in the countryside, will stay and the people and the cultures will kind of change and revolve around it. Oddingly is, for me, it's almost, I, I began to see it as, well, I'll, I'll give you a bit of background because my father's side of the family are all from Worcester, so I used to go to Worcestershire a lot when I was younger and I think it helped me because I, I went until I was about eight and then I never went until I was maybe 28. And so it was always this imaginary place in my head, so I think it made it easier to write about. But Oddingly has stayed very much as it was. It's preserved um, quite beautifully. There's almost the same number of farms. There's no housing estates. Um, it's, it's, there's the addition of the M5, um, a railway and the canal which was there at the time really but it's it's empty it's, it's a place that you can walk around um walk around and and see where things happened and i thought that for me was brilliant because i i did that i went back about six or seven times when i was writing the book seeing what the village was like at different times of the year and and what particular strange plants they might have or whatnot and um and that's just sheer luck that's just sheer luck um next if you're in the vicinity, next 24th of June, they're having a murder walk. The local, um, <laughs> the local University of the Third Age have got involved, and they're going to go around all the sites. And it's nice to, nice to think that it's, it's happened. So um, you can see there's some plaques to um, the people who died, um, which is still up. And, uh, yeah, you can, it's pretty much, apart from the M5, which goes over the murder. <laughs> you have to imagine that bit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Another question for you. Would it not be true to say that there are several murders in the countryside that have never been discovered or come to the courts? I'm speaking of my own experience. In the 1930s, there was a horrendous savage murder in the village that I moved to in the 1950s on the Lancashire-Yorkshire border. Yeah. Everyone in that village knew of the murderer of this poor farmer who had been brutally murdered. Um, no, no one spoke up about it. There was a famous um, detective who came along but realised this. it was just a closed village with no one telling them anything about it. Well, um, well, there you go. That's your, <laughs> your book. The, um, you've got to like. I mean, one of the things with with this, and I was thinking about it before, is that you, to people who live in Oddingley now, this is a quirk of history. It's not a particular pain or an open sore anymore. Enough times passed that we can all laugh about it, and the, you know, there's no like direct descendants of the people or uh, the people who died. So, um, so that's one thing. If you're going to write about the 1950s, as you say, you'll, there'll maybe be people still around who were involved in the case and you could have all sorts of problems. Well, exactly. So, uh, yeah, you'll have a lot of problems if you go down that road. <laughs> yeah. Unless you, I mean, it's a... Yeah, yeah. I think I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I imagine there's a there's a few similar stories to this. There's a few quirky elements to this one, which I think make it unique. Um, which I'm not 
which I can't talk about really. <laughs> but, um, but the, um, yeah, I, th I think like kind of the bonds in the countryside between employees and family members and workers can be incredibly strong and they're not to be underestimated. And I think you probably found this like with Crime Watch, getting people to talk about crimes is very difficult. Um, and I don't know the case you're talking about, but it obviously sounds like a very... There, there was a series on television about this detective, and this case came up. And it was, I mean, you were so frustrated about getting absolutely nowhere. Because they need the proof. And he was quite a brilliant, brilliant man, you know. Mm. Yes. So yeah. often they know who's who done it, <laughs> the police, but their, their problem is the proof. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, I think so. In a sense, Bridget, your, your book is bringing in a different kind of closed society, sort of political closed society. Yes, um, yes. Well, there's the kind of, you have the closed society of the police force itself, mm. which is sort of goes after other crooks, but it's not too hot on, you know, dealing with them in their, in their own midst. And also later on in the book, um, Minahan comes to realise that the Home Secretary um, has a, quite a dark um, private life as well. And, and that is very much covered up um, throughout, not just by the man himself, but also his kind of coterie of very powerful friends and his connections. And there's almost like a sort of pact, a gentlemanly pact, that as long as you did your public duty um, decently, um, what you did in your private life was your own affair. And, and all, all the gentlemen respected each other's pact, because, of course, to reveal one another man's private life, you risked your own. Yes, and so and this kind of perpetuated, if you like, the exploitation of the girls. So, um, yeah, there are these pacts. I suppose, you know, loyalty is a kind of human nature thing that within all groups, whether it's a village or a mm. workplace, mm. that these kind of loyalties and, and difficulties exist, don't they? Mm. So you have to make a stand like Minahan <laughs> if, you, if you want to try and change it. Any further questions? Yes, please. Following on from that, Bridget, do you find it depressing that so little seems to have changed that sort of after this blowing apart of Saville, mm. this morning they're saying, oh, well, there were ministers in Thatcher's government who are now conveniently dead, who like little girls and this kind of thing. And we're still covering it up. Well, I, it, I can see, see that point, but I would disagree that I don't find it depressing because I think um, the Victorians did prove that you can make a change and, you know, Inspector Minahan did change history and he changed our law. And so they kind of taught us that it's not, it doesn't have to be like this, that progress can, can be made. And I think the, the thing that is probably what they were particularly good at is sticking to the point um, about the girls and protecting the girls. And I think what's going on now with kind of people blaming the BBC or whoever else they can think of, and, and they're not really looking out for the girls or the victims. I think we can learn that from the Victorians, and hence being forewarned and forearmed, that was their message. Um, and they, they carried it through. Um, and so the laws still stand today to an extent that they introduced in 1885. So uh, I'm not depressed by it because they made a change and they, they progressed through, you know, that dark period in their time. And I'm sure, or I very much hope that we will too. But I guess it's kind of cyclical as well as you, we go through kind of times of 
you know, ex examining what, what's going on in our society. And we've had it across the board, haven't we, with newspapers, the police, and, mm. and, and with now the Jimmy Savile thing. It feels like we're going through a sort of examination process, and hopefully some good and something constructive will come out of it. Mm. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I've got time for one last question. Uh, yeah, well, Chelsea is is the hat the hat the, the the brothels are still there. They're not. I think they're probably <laughs> owned by Russian oligarchs now. <laughs> but they're they're all three. The one two five, one two seven, and one two nine are still there. Um, the ones that were knocked through. Two, and they're still knocked through. And I did have a chat with a builder. I was trying to get in, but he wouldn't <laughs> let me go in. Um, but he said that he had seen that it had been knocked through previously and kind of covered back over again because he could see the, the delineation in the wall. Um, so, yeah, those houses are still there. The, the police station at Chelsea has gone, which used to be on this kind of stinking bend at the end of the King's Road. Um, that used to be a, a bus terminus for the horse-drawn buses. Um, but Bow Street is still there as well, where he used to work. And that's just an empty shell at the moment. I tried to get in there as well. <laughs> wouldn't let me in there either. <laughs> so, yeah, some of the... Yeah, Chelsea's definitely still intact, yeah. Okay, well, there'll be an opportunity for you to talk further with our authors, and they'll be signing books shortly. Uh, if you could just give them a couple of minutes to get settled in, in the bar, uh, we'd be very grateful. Well, all that then remains for me to do is to thank you both very warmly for uh, such a lively uh, discussion, and for me to personally thank you for uh, sharing your work with me. I found both books intriguing and fascinating and it changed my view of the 19th century so it's been a great pleasure to read your work and to meet you today thank you very much thank Thanks. you thank you very much